It's a joy for me to welcome our guest speaker this morning, and this is a precious privilege for me uh, on a number of fronts. Tonight, as you know, we have our Expositor's Seminary graduation, and um, a few months ago, it was actually about a year ago, uh, when uh, Jerry Rag and I were talking about who might uh, speak at the commencement service, he suggested uh, Dave Doran, who I'll introduce in a moment, and uh, it was, there was no discussion after that. There was one suggestion, one invitation, and one reception. We're so grateful for that. Uh, Dave Doran, Dr. Doran, is actually the president of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as the senior pastor of Intercity Baptist Church. Now, what I want you to know right away, you'll have a more formal invita- uh, introduction tonight, but he fits right in our heartbeat that he's a pastor and a president of a, of a theological institution. He understands that those aren't either or. Those work hand in glove. I'm so grateful for his passion, and he understands exactly what we're doing here at the Expositors and fits hand in glove with that philosophy. And tonight, you'll hear more formal introduction to him, but let me just give you a more personal introduction to him and the impact he's had on our church. A few years ago, we uh, came to a place where we were we didn't have a very good vetting process or decision-making process in our missions program. In fact, we didn't have much of a missions program at all. We were just responding uh, person by person and case by case and agency by agency. So we took a year as a missions committee and, and studied the issue of missions and our criteria for understanding missions. And our curriculum that we used was a book written by our speaker, Uh, Dr. Doran, entitled For the Sake of His Name, which I still think is the finest, most exegetically sound book written on missions that I've known to be in print. At the end of that, we knew exactly what the target was, and we knew exactly what we wanted to to do in missions. So to best introduce him, I, I just pulled my book off the shelf and looked through a very tattered and underlined in multiple colors and pens and pencils. I've been through it so many times, my copy, and I just pulled out three sentences that I wanted to share with you. This will give you an insight into my friend Dave's heart. He says, quote, any meaningful attempt to obey the Great Commission must come to grips with what it means to make disciples. The task before us is not simply announcing the good news of Jesus Christ, it is is making disciples of Jesus Christ. He also says, what is at stake is the power of the gospel. Does it produce a new creation in Christ who follows him? And then my favorite sentence in the entire book, it's so profound and so dense and rich with with meaning and truth. The gospel is not primarily about salvation. It's about a savior. And I love the fact that his heart understands that the gospel is not a plan, it's a person. And you're going to hear from a man who loves Jesus deeply and whose ministry reflects that. Please give a Mission Road welcome to Dr. Dave Doran. Thank you very, thank you very much. It's great to be here this morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go to Philippians chapter 1 and then... Uh, while you're turning there, I just want to express my, my uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here, uh, for the privilege of worshiping with you this morning, and, and then as well the commencement tonight, which I trust will be a time of worship as well, that it'll be an opportunity to praise God for His work through the Expositors Seminary. And it's been 
a real joy to me over the last several years now, I guess probably maybe seven, eight years or so, uh, that I've gotten to know more about, about the seminary, uh, first through doing an actually a missions conference uh, at Grace Emmanuel Bible, and, uh, and really was my first time coming sort of alongside of it, and then just watching what God's doing. And as I said, uh, I've said to a couple times when talking about folks, it's just, it's like uh, I was in, in one orbit of life, and then I sort of came alongside of a bunch of people, and it was like, were clone in terms of uh, doctrine and heartbeat and commitment, and so it just it's almost like you just have never not known each other uh, because you you have the same kind of heart heart and desire and so I thank God for it because I do think uh, the biblical pattern for preparing the next generation of servants for Christ is found in the local church it's not it's not found in uh, sort of a you know a, a store box kind of seminary approach. And yet, in a sense, there is sort of a Walmartization, and I love Walmart, so it's not against it, but the Walmartization of, of education that, that can happen. So you get huge institutions that, that just keep uh, growing in terms of the institution, and, and the great danger is that it, it, can, it can dislocate the preparation of leaders for the church actually from the church. And, and uh, I love the model that, that is being used and the fact that it's based in churches, it's being led by uh, men who are shepherds of the church, and, and so it's, it's a great privilege to be able to be here and, and thankful for that opportunity. And great to catch up with some folks that, that I've gotten to know and am getting to know better as well. You know, the, the reality of it is that the most important thing happening in the world is the mission of Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we are here today, uh, and we have a recognition of that because we're gathered as the people of Christ to worship today. But the sun will come up tomorrow because Jesus isn't done with his mission yet. And, and if it keeps coming up before he returns... It's because he has something that he's accomplishing, which he told us in Matthew 16. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That, that is the most important thing that is happening in, in this world, in the universe. It's more important than anything that you and I might plan out in our lives. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with us planning our lives. I mean, I, uh, I think that uh, God has told us in His Word that we're supposed to live with purpose and intentionality. We don't just, you know, float from day to day. We're actually supposed to have a sense of what it is that, that we're supposed to accomplish for God and, and to work through. But sometimes what we can do is we can, we can see our lives as the center that hopefully then we tap into the church. And, and sometimes, actually, we can think that the church exists for us to be able to be fulfilled and to have meaningful lives, rather than the recognition that, that in fact, we exist for the church, that we were redeemed by Christ to plug into what He is doing. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. So 
Do you know why you have breath? All humanity has it because we have a creator who made us to worship him and walk with him and work for him. But obviously humanity has turned away from that. But God in his grace redeemed you so that you would have, in fact, a renewal of that purpose, that God saved you so that you would do the work that he has entrusted to you as a part of the mission of Jesus Christ. And, and we, we need to have our minds and hearts so saturated in that that it is, in fact, the way we benchmark our lives, that we cannot be a healthy, faithful follower of Jesus Christ treating the mission of Christ as something that we hope we have some time to do. But it actually is the reason we're alive, the reason we're here, that God, if I could put it in sort of a uh, contemporary way of saying it, that God, through the gospel, drafted you to Christ's great commission team. He, he, is, he has secured you for his son so that you might serve him. I'd like us to look this morning, we're going to look a little bit around in the book of Philippians, but try to concentrate our attention here in the first chapter. I'd like to read the report of Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the Philippians and then draw our attention to some specific parts of it. So if you would, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, so, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Look again, if you would, now in verse 5, because here's really where we're going to concentrate most of our attention this morning. Verse 5 says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, or some of you I probably have a translation that says, for your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And so I'd like to speak about is, is that really the subject of gospel partnership, uh, being a partner for the gospel, because that's what Paul's talking about. He, he is expressing his thanks to God for what God did in the life of the Philippian believers, that they became partners in the gospel. And so here's, here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the principle of gospel partnership, and then near the end of the sermon, somewhere near the end, we're going to look real quickly at the practice and purpose of gospel partnership. And the practice will be from the rest of the book of Philippians, and then, Lord willing, if I don't go too long at the beginning, we'll jump over to 2 Corinthians and look at the purpose of gospel partnership. So look at the word partnership or participation in verse 5, because we need to talk about the character of gospel partnership. Paul uses a word here that is, is translated often, if not most often, in the New Testament as fellowship. 
I mean, I don't quote a lot of Greek words, but this is one that gets tossed around, koinonia. It's, it's actually that you have a share in something or you hold something in common. You, you have fellowship that, that has been created by and is around or in something. In this case, he says you have this fellowship or participation, which Nasby has, which I think is a really good translation of it because there's an activity to this that he's talking about. It's not just like uh, we sit down and somebody puts a cake on the table and we all took our share of the cake. We shared the cake as in we just took our slice of it. This is actually more like there's a job that was given and we all participated in doing that job or we became partners in it. So I think ESV, is, as I read this morning, is a good translation of it. So it's something, something that we have in common, which has become a responsibility for us. It's actually something that God has called us into to do for him. And that's what, that's what Paul's thankful for. The Philippian church, you're probably familiar from the book of Acts, uh, started because Paul showed up. Remember, he went and found some, some faithful Jewish women by the river praying, and he preached the gospel and God opened Lydia's heart that she believed. And he, he kept proclaiming the gospel. And remember, he cast the demon out of the, the, the demoniac girl, and her, her owners got mad, and so he got beaten and thrown in prison. The flipping jailer comes to Christ. And, and in the work of God that happened in that relatively short period of time, the power of the gospel formed a congregation of believers, the, the church at Philippi, and they, they became partners with Paul in the gospel ministry. And, and it's because they shared in it. So, so the character of this is that it's a fellowship, a partnership, a participation. I right, notice the next phrase in the, in the text, verse 1-5 says, your partnership in the gospel, because there, there is the context of gospel partnership. It's in the gospel. And again, Paul uses a unique preposition here, in in. It is a good way of translating, but it is actually a preposition that we could translate toward the gospel or unto the gospel. So what Paul's saying here is not just, if you could envision the gospel, it's not just that we all were placed into the gospel and now we have this partnership, but there's actually sort of a direction to the partnership. It's toward the gospel. That's why most take this as being a partnership for the cause of the gospel, a partnership for the advance of the gospel, a, a partnership or participation in gospel ministry, that that's what he's talking about that God had done. But this word gospel is, is very important uh, for us. But look also down at, at verse 7 because he uses a phrase that helps us even get, a, I think, a more clear understanding of what's going on. Notice he says there that he has them in his heart, for you are, you are all partakers with me of grace. So, so the thing that has joined them to Paul is God's grace, the gospel and God's grace. In fact, look at the grace that he's talking about both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So it's still gospel-related. That is, Paul has received grace 
for the confirmation and defense of the gospel, and they have received that same grace, right? They're partakers with Paul of that grace to be a defender, a confirmer of the gospel. A little bit of what he means by that you can see down at the end of the chapter. Look at verses 29 and 30 of chapter 1. Paul urged them to remain steadfast, and then notice these words in verse 29. For it has been granted to you, it has been graced or given to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So here's the grace that Paul's talking about. They have been given by God not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's the grace of God, the gift of God to them, that they have become partakers of that grace in the confirmation and defense of the gospel. So, so here's, here's the truth that Paul is giving thanks to God about. When the good news came to Philippi, that good news worked powerfully in the life of these people to transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the light. It, it made them new creatures in Christ. They, they became now followers of Christ who had believed in him. And that meant they believed the gospel because this partnership, this partnership is only produced by the gospel. It, it's the only thing that can produce this kind of partnership. There's, there's all kinds of partnerships that happen in this world. People work together on all kinds of things. But this partnership can only happen by the gospel itself. Okay, and, and I don't want to assume that we all understand what that means because that can become a very familiar word. It can be like a, you know, a, a coin in a vending machine where the coin's worn down and you slide it into the slot, it goes right to the coin return. You ever have that happen? Nowadays they take dollars, so it doesn't happen as much. But the reality of it is that it's just worn out and it doesn't catch. And sometimes what can happen, the word gospel is so familiar to us, it just, you know, it comes in one ear and just slides right out the other. It doesn't catch. But when Paul's saying this partnership in the gospel, the grace of God that enabled them to believe, it is the message about how God saves sinners through his Son. And so the eternal God who exists, Father, Son, and Spirit, against whom we've sinned and therefore before whom we are condemned, we were made to walk with him and worship him and work for him, and we like sheep went astray, we turned everyone to his own way. And the consequences of that, the Scriptures say, the wages of sin is death. And before a holy, righteous God, we are condemned. But that God because of his great love and his mercy, had an eternal plan by which the Son of God would become the Son of Man, that he would take to himself human nature and exist as one person with two natures, both God and man. And Jesus of Nazareth would live righteously, he would die sacrificially, he would rise victoriously, and he will come again triumphantly. That's the good news. It's good news because you and I are sinners who can never be accepted with God on the basis of our own righteousness. 
Our righteousness, the Scripture says, is filthy rags. We, we cannot be saved on the basis of righteous deeds that we have done. We need a righteousness which is absolutely perfect. And the only one, the only one who has that righteousness is Jesus Christ. He perfectly obeyed the Father's will. You know, the Scriptures tell us, and you're familiar with the Ten Commandments in the, in the Word of God that comes, and, and so God's commandments come to us and say, thou shalt not. That is, it, it establishes a, a boundary line for us, and here's what the Bible says about us, that we are trespassers. God's boundary line is there, and we have trespassed it. God said, thou shalt not, and we said, oh, yes, we shall. We transgressed. God said, thou shall. He said, here's, here's what I expect of my creation. I am your maker, and I have the right to rule over you, and here's how you shall live. And we said, oh, no, I shall not. The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus never broke any command that the Father gave. Everything that the Father said, thou shalt not about, Jesus did not do. Everything that the Father said, thou shalt, Jesus did. He perfectly obeyed the law of God, yet willingly laid down his life in the place of sinners who had broken the law of God. He, he became sin who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So our sin, our sin was laid on Christ so that he paid the penalty for it, so that you and I might in fact be credited with the righteousness of God. Now folks, that's good news. That's the gospel. Because if somebody comes to me and says, hey Dave, if you ever want to get to heaven, here's the list of things that you need to do. I am toast. Because I am not righteous. Even if I could accomplish some of the things on the list, I could not do them perfectly. And every time I violated the will of God, I simply wiped out all the benefit of what I had done. Because a perfect God demands perfect righteousness. And friend, there's not a one of us in this room who has per perfect righteousness of our own. But there's... There's a perfect righteousness which is available to us on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in chapter 3 here that he wanted to be found in him, not with a righteousness of his own, but the righteousness which comes by faith in Christ. That's good news. You can accept the gift of God through Jesus Christ. And that's what the Philippians had heard. They heard that they were saved by faith in Christ, not by their own works and righteousness. And when they, when they heard that news, and like Lydia, the Spirit of God opened her heart to accept it, she was incorporated into the gospel. She became now not just a recipient of the gospel, but she became responsible for the gospel, entrusted with it. 
She didn't just receive salvation from God. She actually received the stewardship of the gospel. This message becomes a part of our lives to be proclaimed to other people. The mission of Christ becomes ours on the basis of the work of God that has been accomplished in us. But it's not only by the gospel, it has to be in the gospel that, that we engage in this partnership, right? There, there sadly has been from, really from the opening days of the church, the, the danger of people who claim to preach the gospel but actually have perverted and twisted the gospel. They, they preach, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, another Jesus than the Jesus that Paul preached, another gospel than the one Paul preached, and another spirit than the one Paul had preached about. And, and there's a sad history of those who have the gospel actually forming partnerships with people who've denied the gospel. And, and this text would say, no, no, our partnership is in the gospel. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6? What fellowship has light with darkness? I mean, there is no partnership there. There is no sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ with those who deny the good news of Jesus Christ. How can I, how can I reach across and, and shake hands with someone who denies the deity of Christ and call him my brother in Christ when he denies the very Christ that, that I believe in? How can I join... Join arms with somebody who's going to tell people that they need Christ plus their own works. I mean, that's why Paul says, if anyone does that, let them be accursed. That doesn't sound like partnership to me. He knows there is no fellowship outside of the gospel. So, so it's not only that the gospel produces the partnership, the gospel needs to be the boundary of the partnership, and in fact, the gospel is the reason for the partnership. It's always for the gospel that we're seeking to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, both extensively, that is, out from us, seeing it spread, but also intensively driving it deeper into the hearts of God's people. And that's, that's what Paul's writing to the Philippians about in terms of what he wants to see happen with them. Look down to verse 12 just for a second there. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, or you probably have a translation that says, for the greater progress of the gospel. So what Paul's after is helping them understand that this partnership that we received is not a partnership in which we all sort of gather together and look at this precious truth and then sort of tuck it in our pocket and, and go on about our way. But the, the responsibility we've received with this good news is that we want to see it advanced and spread. And so Paul could say his imprisonment in Rome, something we would think would be a natural limitation for the gospel. I mean, if, if we're in charge of strategy and your options are Paul, free to preach on the streets of the Roman Empire and proclaim the gospel in synagogues and marketplaces, or Paul sitting in a prison in Caesarea on a ship to Rome and then in a prison in Rome, would you choose A or B? I mean, bottom line is we'd all say A. But here's what Paul says. 
hey, folks, realize that what's happened to me has actually turned out for the advance and progress of the gospel. And he tells how it, it spread in Rome and even gotten to the inner recesses of power in the Roman emperor's guard. Because the gospel and the word of God, he says in 2 Timothy, is not bound. He could be shackled up, but the word of God cannot be shackled. And Paul was, was absolutely committed to seeing them have a mindset to cause it to spread because that's what God's plan is for the gospel. We receive it and we seek to advance it. And, and, and Paul was doing that in his own life and he was wanting the Philippians to do that as well, to, to move the gospel out. That's why he'll commend them in chapter 4. We'll look at about helping Philippi helping Paul in the gospel ministry at Thessalonica. Because when they receive the gospel, they recognize that this gospel needs to go global. Because Christ has all authority in heaven and earth. So go make disciples of all the nations. And so the Philippians knew this wasn't just about us. This is about what Jesus is doing to call out a people for the name of God. And so they started to help the gospel spread to Thessalonica. In fact, the Thessalonians are, are a classic example of what every church should be. And we know that because Paul says that, right? You became a model or an example. And then he tells us why. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord into all Macedonia and Achaia. So, so here's, here's what a model church is like. The word of God echoes out from it into the regions around it and to the ends of the earth. If you want to be a model church, then, then this place should be seen as a place where the gospel is announced and the echo of it is going out all into this region because that's, that's what we were called to in the gospel. We, we were brought into this partnership for the advance of the gospel. But it's not just the spreading of the gospel. If I could put it this way, it's the deepening or strengthening of the gospel in the life of the Philippian believers as well. Look at verse 27, chapter 1. I just want to show you why Paul, Paul would be emphasizing this, this kind of thing here. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So here's what Paul's after. He's, he's not just telling them, Listen, hey, here's what happened to me, and it's causing the progress of the gospel, but here's what I'm really concerned about, is I want you there at Philippi to stand firm in one mind with one spirit for the gospel, that you would strive together for the faith of the gospel. He's, he's really concerned about them maintaining their gospel allegiance as individuals and as an assembly. Okay, the gospel's crucial. And I mentioned uh, earlier, I know you, uh, you've been working through Romans for a little while. And, uh, and, uh, and, and one of the things that's sort of just an interesting little factoid, all right, we always think about the book of Romans as being about the gospel, and it is. 
Uh, Paul uses the word gospel nine times in the book of Romans. He uses it nine times in this little book of Philippians. It's, it's one-fourth of the length, but Paul peppers in the word gospel because that's really what's at stake. Yes, it's, it's the mind of Christ and joy. Those are great themes as well. But, but he wants them to understand that the gospel is what God has called them into and they must stand firm in that gospel and live lives worthy of the gospel so they can strive together for the faith of the gospel. That's what he's after for them, and he wants them to maintain that because God has called them into the gospel so that they will spread the gospel and they will hold fast to the gospel. In fact, look at chapter 2 and verse 16, if you would. Here's Paul uh, and, and he has a great relationship with the Philippian church. I mean, if you take that in comparison, say, to the church at Corinth or even the Galatians, I mean, Paul is, is really full of joy over the Philippians, but he's also, he also has pastoral concern for them. Look at verse 16. He wants them to be holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now think about what he's saying here for a moment. Uh, there had been clearly a response to the gospel at Philippi, right? They had, they had responded to him. I mean, Lydia, Philippian jailer, others had said, we believe this. But Paul knew that coming to Christ was not just a decision that somebody makes at a point in time. It is, it is there is a point at which you go from unbelief to belief. But, but what's happened too often, sadly, is that people treat it as if you're sort of buying a commodity, eternal life insurance. I mean, you, you have a conversation with somebody and say, hey, do you, do you want to die and go to hell? I mean, there might be some odd person out there who goes, yes, I do. But, but almost everyone goes, no, I don't want to. And then they say, all right, so here's what you need to pray this prayer. You know, God be merciful. You know, God be merciful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, hey, you're on your way to heaven. And that person sort of wanders off, not plugged into the fellowship of God's people, under the teaching of God's people, and they don't hold fast to the word of life, what he's talking about here. Paul, would, Paul if that had happened at Philippi after Paul left, if he heard back about the Philippians that they had departed from the word of life, he would say, my ministry at Philippi was vain or empty. I mean, that's what he's worried about with the Galatians, right? He says, I'm in travail again with you. Because if they departed from the gospel, they never got the gospel. And so Paul's saying to the church of Philippi, hold on to the word of life. Stand firm in the gospel. Hold on to it. Do not follow after. He says at the end of chapter 3, those people who are teaching you to mind earthly things and whose God is their belly. You need to hold to the truth of the gospel. One of the great, great sadnesses and dangers within Christendom is that there, will be, there are people who claim to speak on behalf of God who have abandoned the gospel. Like end of chapter 3 says, they mind earthly things, their God is their belly, and so they want to tell you, hey, you know, trust Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, 
You can have your best life now. They, they have not actually embraced the gospel of a suffering Savior who's conquered sin and death and calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Okay, and Paul wants them anchored in that gospel so that they will not depart from it. So, so a church, an assembly, a congregation of God's people has a dual responsibility with regard to the gospel. It is to see it spread, but also to see it strengthened. That the congregation of God's people is growing deeper and stronger in their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ because they understand the truth about him as the word is, is exposited week by week and as we speak truth to one another in love and are being built up into him who is the head. So it's intensive and extensive. That's what this partnership is about. We're called to that by God's grace. Look again at chapter 1, verse 5. So, as we look at the principle of God, gospel partnership, the character is, is that it's a fellowship in the gospel. The context is in the gospel. But Paul is also thankful for their commitment to this gospel partnership. Look at the last part of verse 5. It says, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So, so here's, what, here's what had happened. Paul preached the gospel of Philippi and when they heard the gospel, they, they didn't just receive the gospel, they became responsible for this gospel partnership. And they, they saw that, they recognized that, they knew that the call to trust in Jesus Christ was the call to follow Jesus Christ. As, as, as Pastor Rick said this morning, that it is to become a disciple and, and that is a learner of Christ, to take his yoke upon you and learn of him. And so they had had that happen. They came to be followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at verse 6. This is a verse we're probably all familiar with, but we sometimes don't see it in its context. Verse 5, verse 3 is Paul thanking God for them, expressing his joy, because they had become partners in the gospel. And then verse 6 says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what is the good work that God began in them? That they embraced the gospel and became gospel partners. In fact, uh, I'm not sure exactly why the ESV did this, but they dropped a period in at the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6 is actually, it's not a new sentence. It's actually a participle that's giving the cause for Paul giving thanks. I'm giving thanks for what God's done in making you gospel partners, being confident that he who began the good work in you will, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So when God opened the heart of Lydia... When God caused the Philippian jailer to realize that he needed to be saved and he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, what was happening there is God was beginning a good work in them that God was continuing and would continue until the day of Christ. And that good work was having become a steward of the gospel. They didn't just receive salvation through the gospel, they actually received a stewardship of the gospel that they knew now this is a treasure entrusted to us that we need to hold fast to but also share 
with other people so that they come to know and understand who God, uh, how God saves people through His Son. God didn't just rescue us. The gospel transforms us. It makes us new creatures. It gives us a new reason to live that is actually a restoration of the original purpose that God had for us, to worship Him and walk with Him and work for Him. And we now have a new creation in us in which we are being conformed to the image of God and have been given that new purpose again, to worship God and to witness for Him and to walk with Him. And that's what had happened with these believers. So, so all of us as individuals who have accepted the gospel have become servants of the gospel. Everyone who receives the gospel has a responsibility for the gospel. And all assemblies become partners in the mission of Jesus Christ to call out a people for his name, to build his church. A church, a church that is ingrown is sorely out of alignment with its master. I mean, Jesus has called us to grow, and as we grow and reflect his character, we understand the very nature of our Savior who said that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so a heart that does not want to follow Christ in the mission is a heart that's sorely out of line. I mean, it, it's, it's God's purpose to use us to advance the gospel in this world. So how, how practically can we do that? And I want to just look real quickly here in Philippians at three ways in which we practice this gospel partnership. The first of which is in verse 19. Drop down to 119. And I'm going to read 19 and 20, and then just, I'll just show you what I'm talking about. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored or magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Notice that phrase in verse 19, through your prayers. All right, so there's the first way in which we, we uh, get involved in the gospel partnership. It's through intercession. I mean, think about this. Paul's in Rome in prison for the defense and confirmation of the gospel, and he, he, he knows that God will vindicate his confidence in the gospel. And he knows that in part, he says, through your prayers, that as they're in Philippi, geographically separated from Paul, as they pray for Paul, God will work to vindicate Paul so that Christ is magnified in his life. The effective nature of their praying is what James talks about, right? The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I mean, do we really believe that God has appointed and ordained not only the end or the outcome, but the means by which he will achieve that outcome and prayer is a part of that. That when, when let's put it in realistic, uh, practical terms, that when someone stands in this pulpit to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are a partner with that proclaimer via your prayers, your intercession. 
Oh, when somebody goes out from this assembly into some area in this region or some far reaches of this globe to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, that you are a partner in that work through prayer. You are actually working with them through intercession. That's what Paul's talking about. Or when some brother or sister in this church has a family member or a coworker or a neighbor that's lost and they share that burden with you and say, I'm asking God to open a door for the word or for me to have clarity and boldness, and you begin to intercede that you become a co-laborer in the advance of the gospel. Do we pray like it really matters? Paul would say that's how we partner with the gospel. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, please. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Because here he describes some members of the church of Philippi, and he describes them as co-laborers, workers. Verse 2, chapter 4, I, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, so here, here are members, believers at Philippi, who Paul says labored together with me. They joined with me in the work of gospel ministry. In fact, he uses a word here uh, in, in terms of the work, striving for this work, the cause of the gospel. There's only two times the New Testament uses it, here and 127, where it says striving for the faith of the gospel. And he's talking to the Philippians in both cases and saying that the gospel is a thing in which we labor or strive together. So we need to get not only intercession, but actual involvement in gospel advance and gospel work. In fact, one way the church of Philippi did that, we're not going to look at it in chapter 2, was they sent a man named Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome to minister to the needs of Paul. And he says, he is your messenger, your minister. So, so what he had happening there was this church could engage in the work that was happening at Rome by sending one of its, minister, uh, one of its members to, to serve in that capacity. And so I'd encourage you as an assembly to send folks from your church to go labor alongside of those who are on the front lines. Some, some of you going and lifting up the hands of those like, like Epaphroditus did for Paul. That's how we get involved in gospel partnership. And then look at verse 15 of chapter 4. Here's the third way in which we practice this gospel partnership. Intercession, involvement, and then investment. 4.15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. That word partnership, fellowship, sharing. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that in increases to your account. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So, so here's a third way in which you and I can practically partner in the gospel, and that is take some of the resources that God has given us and use them to aid the advance of the gospel, to, to turn them into 
resources invested in gospel ministry. And that's what happened with them. And, and if you think about the, the, the three benefits of it, Paul's needs were met, they had fruit abound to their account, and it was pleasing to God. I mean, so, so we need to remind ourselves sometimes, you know, it's easy to just get in the habit of the offering plate going by or, or some need comes up. Here's, here's what God's Word's saying. There's a need in the gospel partnership. We have a privilege to join into that. Or like Third John says, we become a co-worker with the truth when we do that. But also, we are putting into practice what Jesus said about laying up treasure in heaven. That's what Paul means. That there's fruit that abounds to your account. But most important is that it rises like a fragrant aroma that's pleasing to God. Why? Because that's why he called us out of darkness into light. And in fact, those three things that we just saw here, intercession, involvement, and investment. Uh, we, won't, we won't look at it this morning, but the reality is in 2 Corinthians, there are three passages that show us all of those go back up toward God. In 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, you must help us by prayer so that when the benefit comes, the thanks of many will be given because of the prayers of many. You know why it's important and when you have some missionary on the field who writes back to you and says, hey, please pray for these issues. It's not because we're trying to strong arm God into working. It's because the God overall wants us to see that there's no gap between, between God and us and them. He's a, a God who's both near and far away. And we here in Kansas can pray for the work of God in Bangladesh or Cambodia or Turkey or wherever and the God of heaven hears. And when he answers there, praise goes from there and it goes from here. God is glorified because multiplied prayer results in multiplied praise. In 2 Corinthians 4.15, Paul talks about his sacrifice in gospel ministry. He says, all things are for your sake so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may abound with thanksgivings to the glory of God. So why, why do you get involved in the spread of the gospel? Because as the grace of God through the gospel spreads, gratitude toward God spreads as well. I mean, you, you know what the chief sins of humanity are? Romans 1. When they knew God, they did not glorify him as God neither were thankful. You know what the gospel does? It turns people into worshipers, and it gives people cause to give thanks to God. You know why you want to be involved in the spread of the gospel? Because people will see that God is worthy of thanks. Spreading grace produces spreading gratitude. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul's talking to the Corinthians about the gift that they would give. He says, and when you give this gift, it will minister to the needs and cause thanksgivings to God. Twofold thanksgiving. The first part of thanksgiving is because it met the needs, but the second part of thanksgiving is because their giving is a testimony to their confidence in the gospel. I mean, think about it, folks. You don't you don't grow up in this world being told to give. I mean, if we walk down to the nursery this morning, you're not probably seeing a ton of little kids going, here, take my toy. <laughs> There's no mine. 
And we live in this world grabbing all we can and hanging on to it because we think everything's about this world. And here's what the gospel comes in and says, it's not. Everything I have is God's. He gave it to me as seed to be sown for harvest of righteousness. So I want to scatter that seed generously and with joy because when I scatter it, God's glorified through the praise and the confession of confidence in him that he will care for my daily needs, that he is Lord over all. And so it all finds its center in God. God called us into this partnership so that we could magnify him through the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you folks probably have more hope and confidence in the NFL football process than we do in Detroit. A little bit better. But I watched the draft coming up uh, a few weeks ago, and I, and I just, you know, I just tried to get who did the Lions, because I didn't want to watch the whole draft, so I could just check in, see who the Lions got. And problem is the, the thing that I had was a, a running tally with grades next to it, so it was a little depressing. I mean, you're like, okay, grade, and then F, and you're going, oh, man, not again, not again, the Lions. So, so somebody thinking they know better than the scouts and the management is, is assigning grades to them. So I, I started with the statement, God drafted you to your team. So here's what I can tell you when, when my name came up on the draft. Your name came up on the draft. Not many wise, not many noble, because God's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the mighty. But here's the reality of it. If you know Christ, there is a reason why God saved you. Because he wanted to plug you in to Christ's Great Commission team. Because in your weakness, in my weakness, this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness might be of the power of God. Are you, are you, on the team, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? And if you have, are you in the game and not a spectator to this gospel partnership? Are you in the game? Because God saved you to be in the game, to intercede and get involved and invest in the work of Christ to magnify his glory among the nations. Let's bow together, please, in prayer.